I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. If you're able, feel free to join us any Sunday evening as we gather in Vancouver, Washington. The following teaching is part 66 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. As the pressure for Jesus to be the Messiah everyone was expecting increases, so do the attempts made to discredit and dismiss him. It's the same old story today. We often want Jesus to conform to our expectations, and if he won't, we often want to dismiss him. But Jesus will neither conform nor be dismissed. If you're just joining us, or if you've been off and on, we are closer than ever to completing our years-long study of a first-century biography of Jesus of Nazareth called the Gospel of Matthew. Can you believe it? Getting closer to the end than ever. Someone said no. No. Can you believe it? No. So go ahead, once you have a Bible, and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. There is a lot of ground to cover tonight, so uh, I'm just going to talk as fast as I can, try (laughs) try to hang in there. Here's the recap. Are you guys ready for this? The recap? Heather, you ended up all the way on that side of the room. That's way far away from where you started. That's great. All right, here's the recap. In the beginning, no, I'm just kidding. It's not that good of a recap, Um, but it is the same story. We're zeroing in on a specific movement of that story. We usually call it the Gospel of Matthew, but what it is really is an ancient biography of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a crazy story, really, because the entire Bible is about God wanting to know and love and be with people. But in the story, it's an unrequited love. God wants us. We don't want him. Unrequited love is one thing, but our problem isn't just that we don't want God. It's that without God, we tend to destroy each other and ourselves. So the story is about the lengths to which God will go in order to rescue us from destruction. And that story culminates in a promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 3 when things first went wrong. God tells people, look, I gave you a choice. You chose life without me in charge, and now things are going to go off the rails. But God says, I will do something about it. God promises that one day someone will come who will crush evil and rescue humanity from inevitable destruction. So for centuries after that, God's people, Israel, were eagerly, uh, desperately at times, awaiting this promised rescuer. He came to be known as Israel's Messiah, which is a word that just means anointed one. Anointed, in other words, by God to usher in a kingdom that would never end. In the meantime, All sorts of other would-be messiahs come and go, other kings come and go. Some of them are okay, most of them are pretty bad. None of them are the Messiah. But then Matthew's biography opens in the New Testament with this peasant stonemason from an obscure village near Galilee. This dude has taken the role of a rabbi or a teacher, and he's going around the empire saying, look, this is it. God's kingdom is now arriving. And he teaches with authority. He claims to speak for God. He performs miracles and signs and wonders. He heals the sick. He opens the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. He even resuscitates dead people. He claims to be authorized to do things that only God himself can do, like walk on water or forgive sins. People usually people thought of as nobodies, uh, recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They're like, hey, this is the guy, but Jesus asks them to keep that little detail under their hat. Until, after years of work preaching the good news of God's kingdom, performing miracles, stirring up all kinds of trouble, Jesus tells his closest friends, look, we are now en route to the finale. This is it. 
We're going to head back to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I'm going to die. Now, to be fair, Jesus says all kinds of really weird things, uh, really cryptic stuff all the time, so his disciples don't know what the heck he's on about. How can the Messiah die? You haven't even done the Messiah thing yet, so that doesn't make any sense. So I imagine they're just kind of like, oh, whatever you say, Jesus. Must be one of these weird things, he says, like how that time he went on about how we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This guy loves metaphors. We don't always understand them. So they head into Jerusalem, and Jesus is suddenly no longer interested in keeping his identity as the Messiah. Hush, hush. People shout him into the city. Praise the king as he comes in. So that's a big deal. Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem uh, during Passover week, so it's crowded with all kinds of people. He starts flipping over tables and arguing with the religious leaders, declaring them corrupt, and these religious leaders are understandably unhappy with Jesus. These guys, after all, were Israel's leaders. They, the way they figure, if anyone has something to say about what God thinks or about the coming Messiah or about Israel's sin or lack thereof, it should be them, not some nobody from nowhere. And Jesus, where we last left him, has not only taken that authority for himself to be the one who speaks for God, to be the Messiah, to talk about Israel's sin, he's announced that these leaders are corrupt and that crooks and hookers are getting into God's kingdom before they are. So last week, we left Jesus as he was telling stories to explain what he meant. Israel's religious leaders are like contractors, he said, who said they would go work in a farmer's vineyard, but never actually showed up to do anything about it. They were liars, and they didn't follow through on what they were obliged to do. They're like thieves and murderers, Jesus said, entrusted with something important, but they've spent their time doing evil instead. And he's got more where that came from. You guys ready to get into it? Great, thank you. Let's read Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Verse 4, then he sent some servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. I uh, love this parable uh, because in crafting it, Jesus presents a portrait of God firmly wedged into a tension that has perplexed the Bible's readers for centuries. Because, look, in the parable, God is depicted as a gracious king who wants to invite rude and ungrateful people to a party. He goes out of his way to do this. He pursues them. He pursues them. When they initially reject the, uh, God, the king, He doesn't give up. He sweetens the deal. Please come. There's all kinds of food. It's going to be great. There's a feast. I want you here. God is the pursuer. God is patient. He's persistent. And not out of any kind of obligation, but because he wants these people to come. The party is, at least in one sense, for them. That is who God is. And the people don't want to come. That's who we are. But there's more. Here comes the deep water. Verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So some are busy with their own plans and careers, so they don't come. Others are actively against the king and his party. They do violence to his servants. It goes on, verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled 
with guests. Now notice, it isn't just a simple faux pas of rejecting the invitation. These people the king, that the king was after, they seize the king's servants, the very people inviting them to the banquet, and they treat them horribly. They even kill them for some reason. And the king, understandably, isn't happy. He exacts judgment on them. And remember, in context, uh, if you remember last week, Jesus is t- uh, talking about more than just judgment in the age to come. He's speaking prophetically about something that would happen to this temple establishment, the religious leaders in the not-so-distant future. In AD 70, Jerusalem was burned and the temple was destroyed. This came to be understood by disciples of Jesus as the king's judgment on those who killed his servants. But God is going to have this dang party. Again, He sends for guests, anyone and everyone, whoever can be found that will come. Not just Israel, the covenant people of God, but Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of unworthy rabble with them, so-called good people and so-called bad people. The only qualification is that they accept the invitation and actually show up. And then there's a weird little epilogue here. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, This is the rabble from the streets populating this party. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. It's a weird, strange scene. I think a scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on this passage explains it well. He says, The wedding garment, in the context of Matthew's gospel, is not passive righteousness, meaning it's not just that God made you qualified. It is active, moral righteousness. It is doing God's will. It is the evidence of repentance by a law-abiding discipleship. But neither this nor any wedding garment is a dreary legalism. It should be noted that the wedding garment of personal righteousness was not necessary in order to be invited to the party. Both good and bad were invited, but the garment of personal righteousness is necessary to stay in the party. So it's a shocking parable, any way you slice it, but it'd be less jarring if Jesus hadn't added this epilogue about the wedding garments. Without the epilogue, this thing would preach right about now. It's essentially a critique of power and religious elitism where position and prestige is stripped from corrupt authority figures and handed over to the lowly, common, the poor, the oppressed. But then it's one of these new invites, the poor brought in off the street, that gets thrown out after the fact. So this last bit is a warning to the rest of the crowd. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders and also addressing the crowd. Everyone gets invited, but that's not the end of the story. Not everyone wants to stay. And this is consistent with what Jesus has been teaching all along, contrasting the wideness of God's generous love with the narrowness of our desire to reciprocate that love, which is why Bruner adds, In Jesus' teaching, the church is always a minority movement. Jesus teaches that everyone is invited. It's a wide net, not just an elect few, and that amongst those who do show up, it's still possible that one can be thrown out of the party, which again is evidence of his brilliance as a teacher. This short story condemns the corruption of Israel's leaders, foreshadows their judgment, 
and the invitation of God extending out beyond Israel while simultaneously warning Jesus' bystanding audience of the cost of discipleship. This guy is good at teaching. I think he has a bright career ahead of him. And then, as it is now, no one wants to hear Jesus talk about judgment or exclusivity, so they get upset. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Now, the next bit of the plan is pretty simple. These guys, the Pharisees, are Bible experts. They know the Torah backward and forward. If they can discredit Jesus' understanding of the law, discredit Jesus' theology, they'll force Jesus to scatter his own following with his own words. What they need is something really dicey, something divisive, a, a lose-lose kind of question. So they figured it out in verse 16. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we'll pause for a minute. In, in Matthew's biography of Jesus, the author uses this literary subtlety to remind the reader who is an insider and who is an outsider to the way of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, true disciples of Jesus refer to him as Lord, while outsiders call him teacher. Now, Jesus is, of course, both things, but recognizing him as a teacher only remains a popular means of dismissing him as Lord. So verse 16 goes on. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're trying to butter Jesus up. Tell us then, in verse 17, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? This is actually a great question. The tax in question was called a poll tax. It was instituted in AD 6, and it was about a day's wages. But the Jewish people were paying more than the poll tax. They had to cough up local taxes as well, a temple tax, depending on where you lived. You might also have to pay taxes to Herod. Now, probably no one enjoys paying taxes, but for Jewish people in the first century, taxation was more than just a financial inconvenience. Think of the Bible's story. God's people, Israel, had a painful and complicated history with freedom. They were freed by God from slavery in Egypt, but eventually they were invaded by Babylon and taken to exile and slavery all over again. Now, at this point in the story, for hundreds of years, Israel has been ruled by foreign occupations. And they had to pay the oppressors, in some sense, funding their own oppression through taxes. And what was worse, the Torah had explicitly forbidden what was called graven images, which were typically carved images that demanded worship or allegiance, what we often think of as idols. So because of this, Jewish people considered it idolatrous for any human to put their image on anything. And on the Roman tribute coin, there, there was the oppressor staring right back at them. Tiberius Caesar, mocking Jewish freedom and Jewish belief, the Pharisees deeply resented this coin, and a group of Jewish political radicals called zealots wouldn't even touch the thing. And to add insult to injury, the inscription that's aborting, uh, 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 orbiting Jesus, uh, pardon me, uh, orbiting Caesar's image reads, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine, or another way of putting that son of God, or Augustus who is divine. The other side read Pontiff Maxim, or the high priest. So this thing couldn't be more offensive to first century Jewish sensibilities if it tried. So if Jesus answered, yeah, absolutely, pay the tax, 
he risks scattering his own followers. They would be like, you, of all people, the supposed Messiah, you want us to pay the oppressor with his idolatrous coin? If anyone should denounce paying Roman taxes, wouldn't it be Israel's long-awaited anointed king who everyone believed would overthrow Rome and install his own kingdom in its place? The tax should be one of the first things to go. If Jesus endorses the tax, he would make himself out to be a collaborator with Rome and worse than that, an idolatrous collaborator at that. But if, if Jesus tells the people what they want to hear, no, screw Rome, don't pay them but two things, jack and squat. The, oh, really? That was funny to you? Okay, great. I'll bring that back later after you've had time to forget it. Um, if he says, no, don't pay them anything, the chief priest could just nod, great, thank you, make their way right over to the Roman governor. Hey, this guy is openly claiming to be the king. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. Arrest him up real nice, and they would have done that. It's a great trap. How will Jesus answer? Verse 18, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Another way of translating that is you fakes, you phonies. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. I love this. Jesus is never one for passive aggression. He just calls them out immediately to their face. You fakes, why are you trying? This is obviously a trap. How embarrassing for them. And Jesus doesn't even have a coin to complete his own teaching illustration, which is crucial in the story's context. Remember, Jesus is in the temple court in this scene where a different kind of special uh, non-idolatrous currency was used. So by asking for a coin, Jesus is demonstrating that he doesn't even carry this idolatrous pagan coin coin of the oppressor, but they might, and they do. He shifted the inferred corruption back to his opponents. Ouch. Verse 19 goes on. They brought him a denarius, so they had one, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, this little story is often totally stripped of its context and used to have Jesus just simply endorse the idea of taxes anywhere and everywhere. Hey, pay taxes, Jesus said so. And that's not all wrong, but it just misses what this story is really about. Jesus reminds his opponents of what they already know. The coin features a graven image and an idolatrous inscription. It belongs to the oppressor. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say, give to Caesar. He says, give back to Caesar. Why? He's asking them, would you want to keep this? Send it back where it came from. Caesar can have his money. It's his, so give it back to him. But, Jesus adds, give God what belongs to God. If the coin bears Caesar's image, what bears in the Bible story, what bears God's image? Us, we do, exactly. So with this ingenious answer, Jesus falls into neither trap set for him. He does not endorse the oppressor, and he continues to call both his opponents and his audience to the high cost of discipleship. Caesar gets his blasphemous coins, that's fine. And what does God get? Everything, all of us. The state has a certain functionality, and as much as we can, we should probably keep our heads down and get along but they don't get us. They can have the money, but they cannot have worship. They can have cooperation, but they cannot have allegiance. Not a bad answer, Jesus. Naturally, verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed. <laughs> so they left him and went away. That's one for Jesus. But these guys won't give up so easily, so let's keep reading. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. 
So this is an entirely different group, but within the same larger group. The Sadducees were like the Pharisees in that they both belonged to something called the Sanhedrin, which is a bit like a court of Jewish religious leaders with a kind of political and religious authority over the temple and over the people of Israel. But the Sadducees were in other ways quite unlike the Pharisees. They collaborated with Rome. They were usually pretty wealthy. They loved Greek culture. Now, the great Greek thinkers taught that the real essence of a human being was the soul and that the body was essentially a, a temporary prison for the soul. So in Greek thinking, when one dies, the true self is liberated from the crude self. Thus, no resurrection from the dead. Why bother? The real you is out there. They thought the idea of a bodily, physical resurrection from the dead was real dumb and they, as was the case with other religious leaders, want to discredit this guy Jesus, who seems to be amassing for himself a noteworthy following, and that can't be good. So the Sadducees assume Jesus will side with the Pharisees. He will acknowledge that he believes in a bodily resurrection, and if he does that, he will alienate himself from a large influential section of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. And if they stump him, They'll make him look foolish in the process, which would be another win for them. It would discredit him in front of his followers. So in verse 24, they go on with their trap. Teacher, they said, there's that word again. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So they know that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. They're appealing to some common ground between them in uh, the Mosaic writings, the writings of Moses. The Sadducees believe that the writings of Moses were the only authoritative text in the Hebrew Scriptures. They mention Deuteronomy 25 specifically. Moses mandated as protection for widows that if two brothers share an estate and one of them dies sonless, the widow should marry the surviving brother so that she would have someone to take care of her and raise up a family for them. For what, from what we can tell historically, first century Israel wasn't really keeping up with this practice anymore, so it's already fallen into disuse. So it's a great way for the Sadducees to illustrate how ridiculous the concept of resurrection is in their view. They go on in verse 25 with the mother of all hypotheticals. There were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error. Literally, it's you are getting way off. Why? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So uh, this is, quite frankly, one of the weirdest and least understood teachings of Jesus. Let's start with what we do know. Jesus isn't really interested in resolving what he thinks is a ridiculous question posed by the Sadducees. He tells them, you guys are so off because you don't know the Bible. Your question doesn't make any sense because you don't understand how the resurrection works. Now, Jesus does not say that humans turn into angels into the resurrection. We think this is where that idea came from, but that we are, in some sense anyway, like angels post-resurrection. Jesus doesn't say that specific marriage relationships are voided in the resurrection or that the bond between a husband and wife ceases to exist in the resurrection. He says that the earthly order of marrying 
which refers to the man's role in enacting a marriage in first century culture, and being given in marriage, which refers to the woman's role in the same process, no longer apply in the resurrection. In his commentary on this passage, R.T. France notes this, Note that what Jesus declares to be inappropriate in the resurrection is marriage, not love. So perhaps heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage, but something more. Thing is, we're pretty sure that Jesus' point here wasn't the way marriage will or won't translate into the age to come. The point was that to Jesus, any understanding of the age to come that does not include the resurrection is wrong because it does not take seriously the Bible or the power of God. Now, theology, the study of God, is quite important to me personally. I certainly don't have it all figured out by any means, but I've, I've dedicated a significant amount of time and energy to it. And the thing about reading a lot of theology and going to graduate school and hanging out with other people who read a lot of theology is that you're trying to understand God, which is kind of hard. So, of course, things get wacky from time to time. And occasionally, you read or you hear some new perspective and you kind of furrow your brow and you say, huh, I don't know about that. That's weird, but maybe there's something intriguing there. Um, I've done this with huge amounts of time, like you, you know, finish a thousand plus page academic volume, all to just kind of shrug and say, maybe, interesting, you know. Then other times, you hear something so incredibly absurd that you have no idea where to begin. Here's an easy example so we can get back to Jesus' teaching. There is a small but growing conversation in certain uh, theologically progressive uh, quasi-Christian circles about the idea of ethical pornography. Now, a conversation that I can go ahead and tell you that no serious academic or theologian or Bible scholar or really, honestly, very few non-Christian ethicists takes even remotely seriously. It's one of those, there are a hundred plus thousands of efficient ways to instantaneously dismantle this idea theologically, philosophically, ethically, logically. Where does one even begin? It's a freaking joke. That's how Jesus answers this oh-so-crafty question from the Sadducees. They come to him with what they believe is the silver bullet to the idea of physical resurrection. And Jesus says, you don't know anything. Your, your presuppositions aren't even in the right place. I don't even know where to begin with you guys. You don't know the Bible and you don't understand God. That's two for Jesus. But the thing is, we hear the way that Jesus goes on dismantling their trap. Oh, the whole people will be like angels and they won't be given in marriage. And we go, wait, what? Because that's weird. Frustratingly, the thing that we get hung up on wasn't the thing Jesus means to address with any detailed specificity. So let that one keep you up tonight. All right, we're almost there. Keep reading. Verse 33. When the crowds heard this, Jesus answered the Sadducees, they were astonished at his teachings. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, there it is again, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now this one, once again, is a clever trap. The idea is that in strict rabbinic conviction, anything that God commands is great. If Jesus picks one thing as greater than another, which is exactly what they've asked him to do, he will be exposed as being theologically liberal. It's sort of like uh, saying that one believes that the teachings of Paul in the New Testament are somehow less authoritative than the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. So Jesus answers in verse 37. He replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, the entire Hebrew scriptures, hang on these two commandments. So Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy 6. And he didn't dream this quote up. All devout Jews prayed this every morning and evening of their lives. It was well known. Other people before Jesus had all, already stressed the importance of this command. But we think that Jesus is the first to fuse this command with the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself as symbiotic and then exalt those two things above all other commands. And remember, they didn't even ask Jesus for two great commandments, but Jesus understands them as two sides of one coin and therefore inseparable in practice. The authors of the New Testament will continue this line of thinking into the early movement of Jesus. I think of 1 John that makes it kind of logical. It says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The two ideas are one and the same. Dorothy Day put it this way. I hate this quote. She says, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Sit with that. For a while. Yikes. Jesus refused to isolate a command, but instead he brings the entire scriptures together in one profound swoop. That's three for Jesus, zero for his opponents, by the way. Now, the realization of Jesus' way of life is often summarized as what was Jesus' message all about? People tend to say, love. And why not? That's how Jesus put it himself. But we like to leave it there. Love, open to interpretation. Typically, the interpretation of the individual. Jesus, on the other hand, is wildly specific in what it actually means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Read the Gospels. They are packed with his explanation of what that means. One dimension of that love is the one that still sells with certain crowds today. Kindness, self-sacrifice, empathy, generosity, active concern for the other, especially the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the overlooked. You can generate some decent, decent hashtags with all that. That's still very popular. But that same dimension becomes problematic with the crowd that prefers to isolate it. Bruner says it like this, a racist, classist, sexist, patriarchal or radical feminist theology cannot be a right interpretation of the Bible because Jesus' love of neighbor commands stands in contradiction to all particularist theologies, the demonizing of the enemy where opponents are turned into devils, seemingly essential in many theological, political and social programs, cannot be reconciled with Jesus' love commands. France agrees. He says, Jesus' argument for the greatest commandment does not mean, as some modern ethicists have argued, that all you need is love so that one can dispense with the ethical rules set out in the Torah. It is rather to say that those rules find their true role in working out the practical implications of the love for God and neighbor on which they are based. One more, Stanley Harawas says it like this, once Christians make love a relatively unspecified ideal, they are tempted, if not willing, to do great evils that goods may come because they have lost the skills necessary to discern evil from goods. In other words, we only know what Jesus means by love God and love your neighbor because he tells us how it works in his teaching. We don't make it up for ourselves because another dimension of Jesus' idea of love for God and others is unwavering obedience to his teaching. 
That's what love means to Jesus. And that markets to very few people. In John's gospel, Jesus just says point blank, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Experience that word, commands. Not, if you love me, you will find your own truth in my suggestions. Or, not, if you love me, you will follow your heart. And as long as you're kind to others according to evolving cultural expectations, that should just about do it. I found this old quote from Luther this week that cracked me up in my office. I was up there alone. Type, type, type. Ha, 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 ha. And here it is. It's not right and is not to be tolerated when one wants to preach, as some dumb spirits still do. If you do not keep the commandments to love God and neighbor, yes, if you're still an adulterer, it doesn't matter. If you just believe, you will be blessed. No, dear man, that won't wash. You will not possess the kingdom of heaven. It must come to the place that you keep the commandments and you are in a relation of love with God and the neighbor. For it stands there clearly, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. I don't always agree with Luther, but what he says here was true before his time and long after it. Now notice that in tonight's text, in each trap set for Jesus, he his answers uplift the importance of one's theology, meaning what, what you believe to be true of God. It's not a mistake that the confrontation and the theological outworking of Jesus' answers appear here in the story, en route to Jesus' death as he is leaving his disciples with his core teachings before he's gone. In Jesus' theology, God invites everyone. He wants everyone, but... They won't be forced in, and there are consequences for those who would rather not join God's party. In Jesus' theology, the hope of God is in the resurrection of the dead, and the truth and power of God are available to those who take the scriptures very seriously. In Jesus' theology, God is ultimate. God is above favoritism. He picks everyone. God is above money. God is above the state. God is above death. God is above all other allegiances. This is about something called sovereignty. Now, personally, I loathe the Christian use of the word sovereignty. Can't stand it. it makes me instantaneously nauseous because the word was, at a certain point in his church history, commandeered by a certain theological camp and redefined to mean control. So almost every time you hear someone talk about God's sovereignty, they're talking about what they believe is God's unilateral control. I don't believe that God controls the universe unilaterally. I think that we've been given freedom. Spiritual beings have been given freedom. The, the whole world is broken because of that freedom. It's the whole thing. The point is, since I feel very strongly about this, I don't like the word sovereign in Christian circles. Once, uh, my wife and I were in a prayer meeting with other pastors, we're standing in a circle praying, and someone said something like, uh, thank you, God, you know, in prayer, thank you, God, that you are sovereign over all, or some such thing, and reflexively, I didn't realize I was doing it, standing here holding hands with people, my head shot up, and I was apparently scowling, and across the room, Abby was standing next to the guy praying, and I, she was already looking at me and going like this, <laughs> she just put your head back down, don't worry about what this man's saying. <laughs> but I don't only dislike the abuse of the word because I disagree with the theological implications of its misuse. I actually regret that we've lost what I think is the true meaning of the word. God's sovereignty in the scriptures is not about his control. It is about his kingship. He is God. He is the king. He is the ruler. We are not. 
Now, at this point in the story, Matthew, the author, has told the reader several times that Jesus' death is imminent. It's about to happen. As the pressure on Jesus to be the Messiah that everyone is expecting intensifies, so do the attempts to prove that he's not really the Messiah at all. It's the same old conversation about Jesus that lingers to this day. We want Jesus to conform to our expectations and preferences and sensibilities. And if he won't do that, then we don't want him. We would like to dismiss him. And Jesus, frustratingly, will neither conform to our expectations, and he's not going anywhere. He really is the king. So tonight's story sort of ends where it begins. Jesus has asserted and maintained his authority against the religious establishment. He is the king, but he's not the king that anyone was expecting. I love Jesus, and I think that one of the reasons that I think the things Jesus says are true is because he doesn't tell me what I want to hear all the time. If I got back from Jesus exactly what I always wanted him to do and say, I would be very suspicious of him. He gives a beautiful take on the persistence of God, the wideness of God's invitation. Come to the wedding banquet. Everyone is invited. God wants you there. I want to hear that. That speaks to my soul. I believe it's true. But in that same portrait, you also get judgment and weeping and thrown out into the darkness and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to hear that, but I think it's true. Jesus seems to truly believe that what we believe and how it informs the way we live actually matters. Now, this, of course, reads like a no-brainer, but we don't want that to be true. Every person in this room who follows Jesus can identify with that second group that gets invited to the party. We were, everyone who follows Jesus, in one way or another, the rabble at one point. We were the street urchins. We were the people, the the degenerates, low on the bottom of the list. Whether your story is sordid and riddled with all kinds of trauma, or if your story is pretty pleasant, privilege and comfort, either way, we all know what it meant to be the rabble because we were all, at one point, far from God. God was not our enemy, not set against us, but we were his. And at some point, in some way, that invitation found us, and we wandered in. And the Father received us gratefully. He welcomed us with open arms and tears in his eyes. Come and sit. I've been waiting for you. Eat. I've made a place for you. I think of Colossians 2, which I've come back to over and over again in my discipleship to Jesus. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The invitation from this text for generations of Jesus' followers invited to the wedding banquet is to pause where you sit and look down at your person and ask, am I dressed in wedding clothes, so to speak? Are you holding fast to the teaching of Jesus with whole life belief, belief that compels living, belief in the kingship and authority of Jesus, shaped by the generous invitation of God that found you at some point, forsaking all other allegiances, a life informed by the hope of the renewal of all things? Or are you dressed like someone who doesn't want to be at a wedding banquet at all? The kindness of God taken for granted, forgotten, 
or divided allegiances. Could be to God, maybe in a little bit, but also to a career or to ambition or to patterns of laziness or smartphones, streaming services, experiences, reputation, politics, money, whatever it might be for you. Are you, are you living even the simple rhythms of each day in your season of life, your stage of apprenticeship, at work, at home, as a parent, as a friend, as a spouse, as a student, whatever it might be, are you living simple rhythms of discipleship dressed in wedding clothes, so to speak, a life of prayer and spiritual discipline and seeking God's spirit? Or do you use your time and your allegiance and your rhythms to live for other things? It's a question worth asking. And if you do look down and find yourself improperly dressed, so to speak, the good news is that the Father who first invited you, the same Father who welcomed you with open arms, is kind and patient and generous, and He is faithful to forgive us and to welcome us back. So let me pray and invite God's Spirit to come and speak and to lead us as we begin worship. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.